The book of Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, if you would find that place in God's Word and stand with me in a moment. Ephesians chapter 1 is quite a lengthy uh, passage of Scripture here today, the first 14 verses of this epistle. And the name of the message this morning is the things that money can't buy. The things that money can't buy. Okay, stand with me if you will. The things that money can't buy, Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul always uses that greeting, and notice it says grace first and peace. It's never peace and grace, because you can't have the peace till you've experienced the grace, right? So he always says grace and peace to you. What a wonderful greeting. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless the words that I speak. We pray that the meditation of our heart will be acceptable unto you. Hear me, fill me with your spirit, and I pray that you will give me the attention of the people, that they will put out of their mind other thoughts and elevate to first importance that which we are looking at here today as we talk about the things that money can't buy. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. You probably never have heard of Hetty Green because Hetty lived back at the turn of the last century. She died in 1916 in Los Angeles, California. And when Hetty died, she left an estate of several millions of dollars. Now, that doesn't impress people so much today, except for the fact that in those days, 
an estate of several million dollars was unheard of. It was like maybe 75 or 100 million dollars by today's standards. Hetty was known as America's greatest miser. For example, Hetty ate cold oatmeal because she thought it was too expensive to heat it up. Hetty had a son who had a severe leg injury. She spent several days looking for a free clinic, and the boy's leg got gangrene, and they had, had to amputate her leg because she was too cheap to go to a place where she would have to pay. And uh, she died of a stroke in an argument with a man about the merits of skim milk over regular whole milk. Hetty was tight. She obviously didn't understand or know how to use her resources. To think that somebody lived that way in filth and misery all of their life, and yet they left an account behind them of several millions of dollars. And that's why I chose today the subject of the things that money can't buy. Because Ephesians, number one today, if you're taking notes with me, is a book about our riches as Christians. It's about our blessings, the Christian, the believer's riches, the believer's resources. I could say it like that. But the truth is, Hetty was rich and didn't understand the power of her resources. And I want to tell you today that you are rich and I want you to understand the power of your resources as a Christian. You see, you've heard people say, oh, they pointed to somebody referencing someone that had a lot of money, and they'd say, ah, he's a rich kid. She's a rich kid. And we think of somebody who has a lot of money. Now, you know what I'm going to tell you today? You're a rich kid. Everybody in the building today is a rich kid if you understand Ephesians, pardon me, Ephesians chapter number 1, and you are a sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a little book <clears throat> over my library by Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby is one of the great writers of our generation or the last generation now, I guess. He's way up in 90. In fact, he may have passed away. I'm not sure. But he, he wrote a series of books called the B Books, and he has a book on every New Testament book. And what did he name his book on Ephesians? It was Be Rich, Be Rich. The theme of the book of Ephesians is about the believer, the Christian's riches that we have in Christ Jesus. It is a book about the blessings, the spiritual blessings that you and I have, and I'm afraid we don't think about them very often. And the subtitle of Wearsby's book was, Be Rich, and then, Are You Losing the Things That Money Can't Buy? Are You Losing the Things That Money Can't Buy? Now, we go to Ephesians chapter 1 here, and in verse 3, beginning in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings, or you could say spiritual riches, the God who has blessed us with all these spiritual riches and blessings that he's given to us. Now, in verses 3, 
through 14, he lists some of those spiritual blessings. And I'm going to point them out to you in a few moments and take your pen or pencil and underline those spiritual blessings that are yours, the riches that you have in Christ Jesus. I want you to underline them or circle them there to to note them because I don't want you to ever forget how rich you really are in the Lord Jesus. Now, in the original scriptures of the Greek New Testament, verse 3 through 14 is one long sentence. There's no punctuation in it. It's just one long sentence. Can you imagine a sentence that long? It's the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. And it's verses 3 through 14 here, listing these spiritual blessings. In verse number 3, he uses the word spiritual. You can note it there. These are spiritual blessings. I'm not talking about material blessings. I'm not talking today about physical blessings. These blessings occur to us in the past. Some of these blessings will be right now in the present, and some of these blessings are in the future. They involve all three dimensions of time. Some of them we enjoy in time right now. Some of them we will enjoy in eternity. We've not yet received them. They're now and forever. These material blessings that we all enjoy here, and we have so many of them in America in this congregation, we're all so blessed. These material blessings, though, are all temporary. But the blessings that I'm going to have you note here in a moment, these are all spiritual blessings. They're not things you can touch or taste or see or feel, but they are absolutely just as real, and they are far more important. Now, I'm talking to people today who some of you have everything. We have a lot of people here that God has wonderfully blessed in this church. And some of you have money, and you have position, and some of you have beautiful homes and cars, and uh, some of you here have wonderful health and children, material blessings, wonderful things that God has given to you. Some of you have a bright future. You're not enjoying it all yet that you're going to have in this life. You have all these wonderful things, but here's the point of my message to you right now. I don't want you to lose the things that money can't buy. You got all this other stuff, but I don't want you to live for that stuff. I want you to live for the things that will be here when time and eternity is over and the world is nothing but a sender and a memory in the mind of God. I want you to live for the spiritual. Seek first, the Scripture says. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the realm of the spiritual. I want you to notice in verse number 3 something else with me. All of these verses, they're so, are these blessings, all of these blessings, their sources in Christ. You see the last two words of verse 3? In Christ. And do you know that phrase is used 77 times in the New Testament? 77 times the Bible says, in Christ, in Christ. You know what that phrase means? It's an extremely important phrase for a Christian. It, it refers to all the people who have received Christ by grace through faith. 
It refers to all the saved. All the saved people collectively in the whole world are in Christ. In fact, the Bible refers to it sometimes as the body of Christ. We are in the body of Christ. What does that mean? Obviously, it's not physical. It's referring to our standing, to our spiritual status. I am in Christ if I'm a believer. And that phrase occurs five times in this one chapter alone. So with that in mind, my aim right now is to cause you to realize your riches in Christ Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, my aim today is to cause you to want to know the Lord Jesus Christ and share in the abundant riches of Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to notice with me these spiritual blessings, if you will. First of all, in verse number 4, according as he hath chosen us in him. There's the first one. We have been chosen of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the same word that's translated chosen here is also the word translated in other places as elect. And so what it says here is if you're a Christian, you are elect of God. And when I bring that up in a Baptist church, everybody gets nervous. Is he going to talk about election and predestination? Yes, I am for a moment. Well, you say, I've had, I don't know how many people say to me, I don't believe in predestination and election. Well, then you don't believe all the Bible. The Bible has it in here numerous times, does it not? So you have to believe that. And Paul says the first part of our riches, the first blessing that he enumerates here is that we have been chosen of God. Say that out loud. I am chosen of God. You believe that? All right, look with me and see what it says about it and see if I can keep you with me on it. Number one, when did, we, when did he choose us? And you see there, it was before the foundation of the world. Before God ever swung the stars into space, before he ever carved out the oceans and heaped up the mountains, he had chosen you and me and his children to be in Christ. That's what it says, isn't it? Words cannot be plainer. You know what that means, among other things? Those of you who may have somewhere in the past believed that you had to do something for your salvation, you couldn't do anything before the foundation of the world. If that verse doesn't prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that salvation is by the grace of God and your works, your prayers, your church attendance, your good deeds, your Bible reading, your moral life has zero to do with your salvation because you didn't even exist. God chose you to be a part of his family before the world ever even, before the universe was ever even created. When? Before the foundation of the world. Well, what was his purpose? Why in the world did he do that? What was his intention in choosing these people? Well, let me tell you about God. He wants a family. He, like a lot of fathers, wants a big family. He wants a huge family, an innumerable company of people to be in his family. After all, there's just him 
the Lord Jesus, there is the Holy Spirit, and there's the angels. And God wanted to expand, if you will, the family. And so he chose to have a family. And why did he want a family? He wanted somebody on whom he could pour out his love, someone that he could bless and who could be with him throughout all of eternity. That was his intention. Go to the book of Hebrews. Keep your finger in Ephesians because we're sure coming back. But I want you to see this passage here because it's a a passage you don't often hear quoted. The book of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every, circle the word every. Now, we have some people today believe in what they call a limited atonement. And when you talk about election, they want to play the limited atonement card. And they want to talk about that Christ only died for the elect, the chosen. What does that, who does that say he died for? That he should taste death for who? Say it. Every man. Does it mean what it says? For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Ah, there's what God had in mind through Jesus coming. He wants a big family and he wants to bring many sons Many sons, not a few sons, not a little handful of sons, many sons, an innumerable multitude described in Revelation at the end of time. God wants many sons. He wants the whole world. And so he said, we're to go to the whole world and to every creature because Christ died for every man. And God said, I want them in my family. And so, before the foundation of the world, this all occurred. And look, go back with me now to Ephesians chapter 1, if you will, please. Ephesians chapter 1, and in verse 4, it says, He not only wants those sons and daughters to be in his family, but he wants them to be holy and without blame. Well, that would be like him, wouldn't it? That would be sanctified people, holy people, godly people. You see, today... We have let Christianity deteriorate in America to where the standard is so low that, uh, you know, anything in any way and anybody can do whatever they want. It just There's no standards left much. But you see, God has a purpose for you if you're a Christian. And he wants you to be holy, pure, unlike the godless world around you. And he wants you to be blameless. He doesn't want anything in your life that could come out that would harm your testimony and the reputation of the kingdom of God. And so today we have this slackness. And it's easier to draw draw a crowd with that, obviously. But on the other hand, God's intention in choosing you before the foundation of the world is to create him a big family of holy and blameless, godly people. Why did he do it? What was his motivation? His motivation is that God's a God of love. Before the foundation of the world, he was still a God of love. And God wanted an object for his love. He didn't need us because God doesn't need anybody and God doesn't need anything. He's complete within himself. But because he loves, he wanted an object for his love. 
I guess the nearest human illustration for that would be here's a man and a woman, and they get married, and they love each other so much, but they also want an object for their love, and so they say, we'd like to have a little baby, and they begin to plan to have a child. They want someone to love because, you see, love has to have an object. You can't love by yourself. Love has to have a reciprocation. It has to have somebody who understands that and reciprocates that love. And in the mind of God, before there was ever a universe, God chose us because He loved us. He didn't choose us, again, because of anything in us. He chose us because of what was in Him, His heart of love. Now, you know, in the Old Testament, it even refers to the Jews, Deuteronomy chapter 7, as being the chosen people. We even reuse that term today. We talk about the Jews. They're the chosen people. And God said in Deuteronomy 7, I didn't choose you because you were rich. I didn't choose you because you were great in number. I didn't choose you because you had military power. I chose you because I loved you. I set my heart upon you. You were the apple of my eye. He uses terminology like that. Isn't that wonderful? And so we come to the New Testament, and God says, now there's another group of people that I want to choose another chosen people. And who are those chosen people in the New Testament? Well, those chosen people in the New Testament you can find in John 3, 16. They're not the Jews. They are the whosoever wills. And in John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world, there's his love, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever Hey, how many of y'all are included in whosoever? Hold up your hand. Vote. Are you in whosoever? You sure are. And what about that man out there that doesn't know the Lord? Is he whosoever? Because there's the possibility of it, isn't it? It's the choice that he makes because he will have to decide to repent of his sin and to put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when did this happen before the foundation of the world? What What was the reason for it? God had a purpose. He had an intention. He wanted to to create for himself a family of people that were made in his image. And why did he do it? Because he's a God of love. His love had to have an object. And the chosen people today are the people who say, I will. I will. I'll trust you, Lord. I will receive you. I will redeem. I will repent of my sins. And in doing so, we become a part of his family. Listen to this verse, John 1, 12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the what? Sons of God. How do you get into his family? You receive him. John 3, 16, I've already quoted. Whosoever believeth in him shall be saved. Romans 10 and 13. Whosoever, there it is again, shall call upon the name of the Lord. So when did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world. What did he do it for? Because he was seeking an eternal family to fill up his kingdom. Why did he do it? Because of his love. And who were the objects of it? Whosoever will when they hear the gospel. I'll tell you, that's a blessing. That's why I told you this morning I had joy in my heart. Would would that put a little joy in your heart? 
Oh, some of y'all in bad shape, I tell you. you I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do to get that joy in your heart. Okay, at any rate, look in verse 5. There's another one. It's adoption. Now, underline the word chosen in verse 4 and then the word adoption in verse 5. He predestinated us, there's that word, under the adoption of children, meaning he made us members of his family. There's the proof of my previous point, isn't it? He made us members. He desires a big family. And so he predetermined back before the universe ever began that a certain group of people who would repent of their sins and receive the gospel of Christ, that he would adopt them into his family. Listen to John Phillips, who many of you are familiar with him, one of the outstanding authors of our age. John Phillips said, and I quote, the word predestinate is never used in connection with lost people. The Bible never says God predestinates certain people to go to hell and other people to go to heaven. In the Bible, the concept of predestination is always reserved for those in God's family. It is God's intention to bring all of us to spiritual maturity to make us holy and blameless here, as this passage says, and predestination always refers to God's purposes with his own people. And so when somebody's telling you, look, there were people that have been born that before the foundation of the world, God pulled their name out of some sort of lottery and consigned them to hell no matter what they do, the Bible doesn't teach that. I do not believe that. That's not the Baptist view. That's not my view of what the Bible's saying. Predestination always is referring to God's purposes with his saved people, and he adopted us into his family. So you can say, I'm a child of God. I'm adopted into the family, which means I'm a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Where's that joy, folks? The Lord Jesus Christ is your brother, the one who died for you. You're now in his family. Well, verse number six has another one. It says, we're accepted in the blood. We're accepted in the blood. What is that? Well, the beloved is the Lord Jesus. And so, because of what Jesus did, I am accepted. Now, notice why I'm accepted. Not because I'm a preacher. Not because you're a church member. Not because we pray or read our Bible every day or because we try to do some good works or good deeds. I'm not accepted because I'm a tither. I'm not accepted for any of the reasons that come under the heading of religion. I'm accepted because purely and simply I'm accepted on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm accepted by his son. Verse 7, you see the word redemption. There's another one of my riches and my blessings. There's another one of the wonderful, great things that should bring me joy as a Christian today. I am redeemed. You know, back during the days of slavery, I read at the very end of the time, just before slavery was abolished and the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, it was an interesting thing. There were numbers of people across America that were so turned off by slavery that these people, wealthy people, would take their money and they would purchase a slave. 
at one of the slave markets or auctions. They would purchase that slave, and then they would give that slave a paper that says they have been set free. And that, was, that paper had the word redemption in the paper. These people had been redeemed. The slave had been redeemed by the person who had cared about this situation. And they had paid their money, and they had granted them their freedom. Now listen to me. Listen. You and I were slaves. Slaves of sin. If you think sin does not bring bondage, boy, you're pretty naive about what is sin, my friend. Sin can put chains around you and shackle you as much as any slave was ever shackled. Jesus Christ came. He did not pay money. He paid something far more valuable than money. He paid his own precious blood. And he hung on the cross and he died for our sins. God saw that the price had been paid. And God said, you're free. You're redeemed. When you come to Christ and when you receive him as your Savior, you are freed. You no longer need be shackled in your sins. Redemption means I was a slave to sin, but now I have glorious freedom. Look in verse 7. You see another word, and that's forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. I was reading an interesting story not long ago, and the story was of a man over in Africa. An African was translating the Bible into his own native dialect. And he came to the passage over in Isaiah that says that though our sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And the translator said, how do I translate white as snow? Nobody in Nigeria has ever seen snow. They have no comprehension of what it would be like to walk out and everything is covered with several inches of snow. How do I say How do I describe and compare how God cleans up our hearts through the blood of Christ? How do I describe that to an African native in Nigeria who never has seen or comprehended snow? He said, what is the whitest, cleanest thing in our culture? And he finally settled on the inside of a coconut, and he translated that verse in that dialect. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as the inside of a coconut. (laughs) Well, he made the point, didn't he? The point is, is God looks at us and we're forgiven. Say that word with me, forgiven. What what is one of the blessings of Ephesians chapter 1? We are forgiven. And I spoke last week or so about guilt and how that God put that conscience in you and me. And that conscience registers. The red light comes on and it blinks at us when we sin. And somebody says, oh, I want to get rid of my guilty conscience. And so they go to a psychologist or a counselor of some kind. And the counselor tries to tell them, well, you need to do this to get rid of guilt. In some cases, people start taking pills and they start drinking alcohol to get that red light of conscience to quit flashing on the dashboard of their their mind. 
The truth, ladies and gentlemen, is that that light is supposed to flash. God put that light there for a purpose. Just like the light comes on and says the oil in your car is low, go somewhere and get it fixed. In the same way, my conscience blinks and says there's something wrong in your life. And you go to the cross and you find consciousness or you find, uh, you find freedom of conscience. You find forgiveness for your sins. At the cross, you find your heart can be as clean as the inside of a coconut. It can be white and pure and forgiveness of sin. In verse 7, you see another one of the blessings. I'm telling you about your riches, things that money can't buy. And in verse number 7, there's another one, and it's grace. You know this one, the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor that God gives to us that we do not in any way deserve, but he gives it to us anyhow. He gives it to us because of his love for us. One of the definitions of grace applies so wonderfully here. It's an acronym taking the words G-R, or the letters G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. See, it's about the riches of God. God has his riches for you and me, and he bestows them upon us because of grace, because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his kindness, because he wants a big family Not a few people sitting over in the corner of heaven. He's got to fill up an entire universe of people that are his sons, the sons of glory, he calls them. And because of that, he wants everybody to come to Christ. Verse 8 has another one. Mark the word wisdom. Do you know there's wisdom available for you as a Christian that the world knows nothing about? Now, Worldly people have wisdom. Through experience and knowledge, they can acquire a certain level of wisdom. But this is not talking about just worldly wisdom. This is talking about spiritual wisdom. This is talking about the wisdom that Colossians calls the wisdom of Christ. The ability to know God's will and the desire to do that will once it is known. Wisdom. Verse 11 mentions our inheritance. I told you some of these blessings for the past, some of them are for the present, some of them are for the future. This one's for the future. An inheritance. And and here's what that means. It means far more than just being able to go to heaven. If all you think that God's inheritance for you is a place in heaven, you've, you've sorely missed it. You see, God is going to reward people after this life with certain positions in, in eternity. And by the way, those positions are based upon how we live right now. And there are going to be people in heaven, and they are not going to receive much. They, they have no reward. And they're not going to have a position there of service to the Lord that they could have had. The Bible says at the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be tears. I've heard people say there's no tears in heaven. That's not right. The Bible says there is tears. It's the tears of the believer. Why would believers have tears? Because they'll look and see the opportunities that they had to serve the Lord. 
and the positions they could have had throughout all of eternity, and they didn't do it. They lost something really important that money can't buy. You see, I believe that the Bible teaches that throughout eternity, we will be rewarded according to what we've done here. And the proof of that is, do you remember the parable where Jesus said that he's giving out rewards and he says to one man, you've been faithful. You have rulership over five cities. And he said to another one, you're going to have rulership over three cities. And to another one, he said, you're not going to rule over anything because you were not faithful in that which is least, the material things, so you can't be faithful in the spiritual things. So there's an inheritance for us if we're faithful to serve the Lord. And then in verse number 13, there's the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit, meaning God's seal is not a wax seal or one that somebody licks and sticks on a document like we do on a legal document, or not that one some, someone uses a seal like a notary and stamps something. God's seal is none of those things. His seal is the Holy Spirit who comes and lives within our heart. Do you have the seal of God, the Holy Spirit living within you today? That's one of the blessings. That means that we are eternally secure. How could a person be lost after they have the Holy Spirit of God sealing the transaction and giving them eternal life, life that is never ending? Boy, what a basis for joy in our hearts today. And in verse 14, we have the earnest there, the earnest of our inheritance. The word earnest is not very much used anymore, but they use it in the real estate industry. I go look at a house, and I say, you know what? I really like that house. I think Norman and I are probably going to buy that house. And the real estate agent says, well, now, are you very serious about it? Yes, we are. Well, there's two other people looking at it. Now, if you'll give me a certain sum of money in earnest, then I will set that house off, and you'll be able to have that house. Do you have some earnest money you could put down? And notice what the Scripture's teaching, that the Holy Spirit that God gives us at the moment of salvation is the earnest. It's the promise of more to come. I am told that in the original languages, the same word was used for an engagement ring. So the young man would give his future bride a ring, and it was called an earnest ring. What did that mean? It meant there's more to come. It meant, look, I'm giving you this right now, but it's a promise of my love that we will, we will finalize and consummate at our wedding, and then you'll be my bride. And this is just a token, a promise, if you will, of great things to come. Now, I've given you 10 wonderful blessings. There they are. Chosen of God, adopted into his family, accepted because of Christ, redeemed by his blood, forgiven of my sins. His grace has been given to me, extended to me. 
I have the wisdom that's available through the Holy Spirit and through the teaching of the Scripture to help me find His will. I have an inheritance that's laid up for me in eternity based upon my service here. I am sealed by the Holy Spirit, and I have the earnest, the promise of more good things to come. There's a lot more gifts that I don't have time. These are just the ones here. That's enough of them, isn't it? Isn't that enough to live for the Lord and to motivate us to, to be faithful to Him? Old lady from over in the hills of Tennessee or Kentucky, she went to visit some of her relatives, and they brought her down to Myrtle Beach. And they had her walk out on the beach and look out there at the Atlantic Ocean. And after she had looked at it for a few minutes, she was just overwhelmed with the ocean. They said to her, well, what do you think of the ocean, Grandma? And she said, wow, there's a lot of it. Ladies and gentlemen, we stand here at Ephesians chapter 1, and we look over the great ocean of God's promises and God's blessings and God's resources that we have as Christians. And the only thing I could say to end this sermon is, wow, there's a lot of it. My, the blessings of God that you and I share, his wonderful riches. Now, last thing, real quick. Let me tell you how rich you are. I've never looked at your balance sheet. I have no idea how much money you have. I sort of suspicion how much some of y'all have, but I, I don't know how, many, <laughs> how much anybody has. You either are doing well or you've got your credit cards highly charged. I'm not sure which that is. But at any rate, I don't know how rich you are physically, materially. But I know how rich you are spiritually. Can I give you a little formula? Write it down because it's really important. You add up everything that you own that money can't buy. There's 10 things to be a good start. Take everything that you own that money can't buy. And then you take everything that you have that death and disaster and time can't take away from you. And that's your true riches. You take everything that you have that money can't buy, that death and disaster and time can't steal away. And that tells you how rich you really are. Because the rest of it you can't keep. The old saying, I never saw a hearse with a trailer behind it, is so true. Two boys standing on the corner watching the funeral procession of the rich man go by. One said, how much you think he left. The other one calculated for a moment and said, all of it. All of it. All of it. I do a lot of funerals. A lot of funerals. You know what I found out? When you come to that point, we're all the same. Job said, naked was I when I came out of my mother's womb, and naked will I be when I go into the future. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gave and he took. Blessed be his name. A woman was seeing her counselor. She was on the verge of a divorce. 
She said to the counselor, I don't understand what's happening to us. We have so much. She pointed to her ring. This ring is worth thousands of dollars. We have a big house in the nicest area of town. We've got cars in our garage. We've got money in the bank. We can do anything we want to do. We've got a house in the mountains. We've got everything that money can't buy. Why can't we get along? And the counselor said to her, it's good to have the things that money can buy, but be careful, don't lose the things that money can't buy. That's my exhortation to you today, church. Don't lose the things that money can't buy. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.